This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord, you took on our human flesh and transfigured it by your power. May we who are united to you by the power of your Holy Spirit be transfigured with Christ by the renewing of our minds, that we may become like him in his death, so that we may also share in his resurrection from the dead. Amen. You may be seated. So one of my favorite contemporary novelists, and I know some of you also share a penchant for him because we've talked about it, is Cormac McCarthy. Some of my affection for him comes from his close association with Texas and with the Southwest more generally, which is the place that feels most like home to me. Although he was born in the Northeast and lived for much of his early adult life in Tennessee, later in life McCarthy developed an enduring fascination with the southern border and with the Southwest more generally. And he ended up moving there, actually, first to El Paso and then to New Mexico, and a great many of his novels are set near the border. So I'm beginning with Cormac McCarthy because in one of his famous novels, No Country for Old Men, he develops a literary image that, in my judgment, powerfully illustrates our readings for today, and in particular, the meaning of the transfiguration of Christ for us. So in that novel, one of the characters, a man named Sheriff Bell, remembers how in his father's generation, the cowboys who were on the trail, as well as the Native Americans that taught them, would carry the embers from the fire of one camp to the next in an animal horn or some other fireproof container. And in the more ancient Native American practice, the fire, the fire carrier was usually an important member of the tribe and was usually first in the trail procession. He had a very important function to start fires that they would need for cooking and warmth on the trail. So in another novel of McCarthy's, The Road, carrying the fire becomes an image for McCarthy of how historical memory works and how civilization and hope are preserved. In The Road, there's some nameless catastrophe that has befallen the earth. The sky has somehow become permanently covered by a gray, thick cloud or smoke or something like that. It's kind of like Pittsburgh in February, although not today, so enjoy it when you leave here. It's going to go away very soon. When you, so so uh, there's this gray cloud and this kind of smoke that covers the sky. And from the sky, there's an eternal ash that rains down as if it's like a volcanic eruption. And it covers everything. And nothing grows anymore. The trees have died. And agriculture has died. And animal life has died. And humans carry on this kind of marginal existence as scavengers, picking through the remains of civilization to find like cans of food and other imperishables. And as hope dwindles and a deep despair settles over humanity, many have turned to brigandry and lawlessness, and others more ominously to cannibalism. So the action of the book centers upon a father and son trying to make a way for themselves and to continue to hope when death and decay are their only companions. And near the beginning of the book, McCarthy narrates the death of hope by creating an analogy with the death of Christendom in the West. The father looks at the dismal sky and it says, he sees a single gray flake sifting down. He caught it in his hand and watched it expire there like the last host of Christendom. I don't think this is an idle or an unintentional metaphor for McCarthy. The death of Christendom over the past 50 years has been a source of deep pain and alienation and despair for our civilization. Even if the West, as we know, was actually unconverted and basically pagan in its deepest impulses, it was nonetheless steeped in Christian imagery and in biblical phrases and stories. 
And so McCarthy can draw upon the pain of that image of Christendom dying to convey aching loss and bleakness precisely because the death of Christendom has meant all those things for Western civilization. So hope for humanity has utterly withered in McCarthy's book. But what is so wonderful about this book, actually, is that it's not hopeless. It's actually a thought experiment in what it means to maintain and even to cultivate hope in the midst of what is objectively a hopeless situation. Carrying the fire is a phrase that father and son repeat to each other throughout the book. It's actually a liturgy. It's a refrain that they repeat over and over again throughout the book, which signals their commitment to have hope and to continue their quest. And each time they say it to one another, it signals this renewed commitment to maintain their humanity, not to become debased by the horrors that surround them, not to live without conscience. This image Carrying the fire has become for me an important way of symbolizing what we Christians are doing as we try to live out the gospel in dark times. Now, we don't live in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, but it's also safe to say that we don't live in hopeful times. We live in anxious and indeed despairing times. We live in a time in which every institution and organization, it seems, has been humiliated by the exposure of the misdeeds and secret abuses committed by founders or major players. Some of these falls are much harder to take than others. Not because they're shocking, what can shock us anymore, but because they're unexpected and they're so much closer to home. They keep happening in places where we thought we saw goodness and nobility and beauty radiating forth. I just found out yesterday, and it's hard to convey to you the level of heartbreak that I feel about this, but one of my personal heroes, John Vanier, the Catholic founder of the large communities, engaged in a repeated pattern of sexual abuse with the nuns and assistants who served the cognitively disabled alongside of him in the large homes. It's dark times. We know, we can tell of countless other personal failures of people we used to admire in every area of society. Who can we trust now? The Pew Research Foundation conducted a wide-ranging study of social trust in 2018, which reveals, it's not unexpected, but it reveals that trust is at an all-time low in American culture. So-called high-trusters, according to this study, compose only about 22% of the entirety of the American population. This is striking not only because there are indications that trust is declining across the generations, but that the erosion of trust is happening most powerfully among among young people. About 37% of Americans over age 65 can be described as high trusters, but only 11% of those aged 18 to 29 and only 18% of those aged 30 to 49 are. So when asked whether they, disagree, whether they would agree with the statement that people just look out for themselves most of the time, or that most people would try to take advantage of you if they got the chance, nearly three-quarters of people under 30 strongly agree. The deepest declines in social trust, then, are among younger millennials and whatever you call the generation after that. Is it Gen Z? Is it iGen? Is it Zoomers? I actually don't know, but I'm going to go with iGen. This is an indication, though, that there are no strong and healthy institutions that are at present able to cast a compelling vision for a good life. There are no public leaders that young people can look to with admiration and with respect for how to model their lives, 
how to look to for a success sequence. This is a terrible place to be. But if we are Christians, we should not be without hope. This is not the first time that the church has found itself in exactly this situation. This is actually a distressingly common predicament that the church finds itself in periods of profound social decay and in the twilight of the world's great empires. In such moments, the church, which has itself become caught up in and morally compromised by the corruption of the world, turns again and asks the Lord to make good on the promises that he has made to renew our humanity. The church, in these moments, seeks to wake up and to purify itself and with St. Paul to acknowledge that we have not already obtained or reached the goal, but that we press on towards the goal. And we do it for the same reason that St. Paul says he is doing it. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In Jesus, we have seen the face of God turn toward us. And he is lovely, and he is beautiful, and he beckons us. And in these moments when everything around us is turning to ash and dust, we still know that God has shown his radiant face to us in Jesus, and we long for him to renew us again. And as the church, we come to realize that our roots have not been deep enough. We have been so eager and so anxious for social approval and for relevance and for influence that we have been using worldly means to reach the world and we suddenly come to our senses and we realize that we have been neglecting our one source of vitality and power and purity. And so in that moment, we begin to mine the scriptures and the tradition for inspiration and for those deeper roots in the faith once handed down and we encounter Jesus once more. And he becomes alive in us again. And we experience the ravishing joy that Jesus promises us again. And that joy is exactly what the apostles promised it would be. It is the source of tremendous corporate and societal renewal and of power and of energy. And when the church realizes how much joy there is in knowing Christ, we slowly and we quietly differentiate ourselves from our host culture. We don't do that by physically or institutionally withdrawing ourselves. That would be impossible. But we shift what occupies our attention. We shift where we find our satisfaction and our meaning. And the church, above all, in these moments becomes characterized by a depth and clarity and compassion and flaming love. And when I think about carrying the fire, it's the hope for renewal that comes to mind. Dorothy Lee has written a tremendous book on the transfiguration as a motif in the New Testament. And she argues that Western Christianity is in many places struggling for survival against the deadly secularism that smothers any sense of transcendence or mystery. This deadly secularism is actually another word for practical atheism. An atheism that reveals itself less in what is said than in what is done. And the church as much as the world, we must reluctantly and painfully confess, has become desiccated and shriveled in its interior life by adopting this deadening secularity. This is not new either. We have been this way for generations. All the way back in 1926, there was a Japanese visitor to the U.S. named Kenzo Uchimura. 
And he wrote about his experiences in the churches that he had worshipped in while visiting. Here's what he says. Americans are great people. There is no doubt about that. They are great in building cities and railroads. Americans, too, are great inventors. Needless to say, they are great in money. Americans are great in all of these things and much else, but not in religion. Americans must count religion in order to see or show its value. Statistics is their way of showing success or failure in their religion as in their commerce and politics. Numbers, numbers, oh how they value numbers. 1926, friends. Now, Uchimura was not dissing metrics or saying that we shouldn't pay attention to such things. Of course we need to pay attention to these things. But he was saying that something was off in the American temperament. Some deadly secularity had taken root there that made us unable to grasp what Christians in other places and at other times have understood very readily. Christianity says that the hope for humanity is transfiguration. It is Christ transfiguring our humanity by assuming our humanity. And the church both as a body and as individuals being transfigured with him. When Paul in Romans turns from describing the glorious gospel to unpacking its implications in chapter 12, this is what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, the gospel, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our Bibles use that word transformed, but it should really say transfigured. Because it's the same word in Greek that Mark and Matthew and Luke use to describe what happens to Jesus at the transfiguration. And it's the same Greek word from which we also get the word metamorphosis. What Paul is doing is pointing his readers to the transfiguration of Jesus as the hope for humanity. What Christ is in his very identity the place where God indwells humanity, the place where humanity is liberated from enslavement to the power of sin and death, we must also become by the power of his grace. Just like inside of a chrysalis, a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, so the hope for you and for me is that God will work in us just such a metamorphosis by conforming us no longer to the sinful and deathly secular pattern of this world, but to what humanity was always meant to be in Jesus Christ. God's will for us is that we would be so united to Christ by the Holy Spirit that we would be healed, that our humanity would be transfigured just like his, that our faces would shine like the sun as well. This is why Dorothy Lee says that the church in America needs to regain the vision of Christ on the mountain, the light in which we see light, the echo of the divine voice acclaiming Jesus, the beloved Son, the biblical symbolism of a majestic, incarnate, crucified God as the only source of hope for the transfiguring of a disfigured world. We're meditating together today on the transfiguration as Matthew tells the story. To be clear, today is not the feast of the transfiguration. That comes later this summer. But we celebrate it now, too, in Epiphany Tide because it is an epiphany. 
It is a revelation of Christ's identity, just as much as his baptism, which we celebrated on the second Sunday of Epiphany, just like the star that led the Magi to the manger was. The fact that we celebrate this great revelation of Christ's identity twice in a year should cue us in to its centrality for the Christian life. Now, for the Western church, the transfiguration has never been a major theological motif. But in the Eastern church, this feast is second only to Easter and Christmas as the most important feast of the year. This is because the Orthodox have always understood that the incarnation and the humanity of Jesus is as significant for the church as his divinity is. As the word becomes flesh, he heals our humanity and indeed transforms it so that it can be carried even above the glory of what it was made to be in its nature. United to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.4 says, we who are his disciples are made to be partakers of the divine nature. The word for this transformation among the fathers and the mothers of the church is theosis or theopoesis, which translates to deification or being made gods. Now, this language is startling, and it can make Western Christians particularly very uncomfortable, even though we find it in the earliest fathers of the church and in defenders of orthodoxy, like Irenaeus and Athanasius. And it's not that the creator ceases to be creator, that we cease to be creatures, but that we are made godlike in all the ways we were intended to be. We come to inhabit all of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. And the transfiguration, the hope for our human nature is manifested in the face of Christ himself. As the Orthodox love to say, in the transfiguration, Christ becomes translucent. His face shines like the sun. The light of his divinity shines through his humanity and it shows us what our destiny is as his disciples. We are destined being united to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to have our humanity transformed in this way that we too might become translucent, transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. Now light and fire went together in the ancient world. If you were going to produce light in a dark place in the ancient world, the way you did that was not by flipping a switch and turning on the LED bulb. You built a fire. And so when ancient Christians began to interpret the transfiguration, their imaginations put these two images together. It was divine fire that burned within Jesus and made his face shine like the sun, and yet that divine fire did not consume him, just like the bush burned in the wilderness before Moses, but was not consumed. And if we understand salvation from this vantage, carrying the fire takes on an even deeper dimension. If we are filled with Christ, if we are carrying his fire within us, then we will also become incandescent, filled with his fire and the light of his glory, which will burn off every defect and impurity within us, but will not consume us. When you begin to understand this way of thinking about salvation as the healing and the transfiguration of our humanity so that we burn with divine fire and are filled with divine light and glory but are not consumed, you begin to see just how deeply it is embedded in the New Testament. And in particular, the Gospels. The transfiguration is not a throwaway moment. It's not a stray incident in the Gospels. It's a motif which actually suffuses them thematically. Each of the synoptic gospels correlate what happens in this moment with Jesus being transfigured with Moses out at Mount Sinai. Now, Jesus goes up to the top of a mountain, 
just like Moses did. A cloud descends upon him, just as it did upon Moses. Moses and Elijah, who is Israel's greatest prophet, appear and speak with Jesus. I'm going to do a Luke juke real quick. Luke actually reveals the content of this conversation, making the connection with Moses completely explicit. As Jesus is transfigured, Moses and Elijah appear to speak with Jesus, and they discuss what our translations render as his departure, which is to happen in Jerusalem. Guess what the word is for departure? Exodus. His transfiguration reveals what he is about to do for his disciples. He is about to lead them in a new exodus from a very different kind of slavery than Moses led the Israels out from, led the Israelites out from. It's a slavery to sin and the power of death. Jesus is liberating our humanity itself by the power of his divinity from this deep enslavement, making it possible for us to return to the Father. Now, it's clear from Matthew that the disciples really have no idea what's being shown to them. But they're not stupid. Okay, we need to understand why Peter reacts the way he does. And sometimes preachers and commentators will suggest that Peter's just babbling or uttering nonsense, but he's not. Matthew is too careful a student of Israel's traditions and hopes for that, and he is too careful a literary artist for that. Crucial to Israel's hopes during the intertestamental period, the period after the closing of the Old Testament and the coming of Christ, was the belief that God would come and tabernacle among his people again, just as he had done after the original Exodus. And Josephus, an important source for the understanding of Israel during the Second Temple period, records that among some Jews this hope was quite literal. They thought that God would actually literally tabernacle with them again in the wilderness. And so Peter understands what's happening very well. Jesus' transfiguration is a theophany, a manifestation of God's presence on the earth. And Jesus is, as it were, pregnant with God's presence in this moment. Peter has already seen and confessed in Matthew 16 that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows exactly who Jesus is. And now he sees Moses and Elijah in the presence of God. And Peter is saying, this is what we have been longing for, finally. With Psalm 104, Peter knows that when God withdraws his presence, the creation withers and dies. Peter's heart is this. He's saying, Lord, I want your presence. We've been dying all day long without it. So, Lord, if you wish, if you wish, I'll build three tabernacles right now so God's presence will dwell permanently with us again. And wouldn't that be outstanding, Lord? Peter has misunderstood not because he's an idiot. He's just voiced the longing for God's presence to stay forever in his dark times, just like you and me want him to stay forever in our dark times. This meaning becomes especially clear in the next verses as a bright cloud appears and covers Jesus and the disciples. Now, it's important to remember this. Whenever you see a cloud in the Old Testament, that cloud symbolizes divine presence and divine glory. A little bit later on, we're going to sense the altar. It's meant to remind us of that divine glory, the glory cloud. When Israel is led out of Egypt, they are led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. As Moses ascends the holy mountain, the cloud descends upon it. When the Israelites worship in the tabernacle, a cloud descends upon the tabernacle, filling that place with God's presence and glory. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, the priests who serve the temple literally cannot stand up. The presence of God is so thick in that glory cloud. So the appearance of the cloud here would have been understood by Matthew's readers in just this way. It's a manifestation of divine glory and presence. And just like Peter, we long for this divine presence to stay with us forever and to transfigure everything. In fact, we're not wrong to want this. That is the Christian hope for the resurrection. Permanent divine presence that transfigures our humanity. And as the Synoptic Gospels portray Jesus as the new Moses on a new Sinai, they are at the same time making the case that he is fulfilling the ministry and the mission of Israel, which is ultimately the vocation of humanity itself by making a possible an authentic human existence lived out by his disciples in imitation of himself. It's critical to pay attention to the symbolism of Matthew as a whole if you want to grasp this point. The symbol of light in Matthew's gospel is there throughout. It begins in the earliest chapters. The gospel begins with the star that rises in the east to proclaim the birth of a king and to light the way of the wise men to the Christ child in chapter 2. Matthew develops the light motif in Jesus' proclamation of what his ministry is about to be about and about the coming reign of God. He quotes Isaiah. The people sitting in darkness and shadow of death have seen a great light. Matthew understands this light as the light of God's presence, which is manifest now in Jesus. Jesus, who in Matthew's gospel is called Emmanuel, God with us. And later, Matthew is going to make plain that this same light is to be internalized and manifested in the life of the disciples themselves. We see this first in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Jesus calls the disciples the light of the world. But then the parallel between the transfiguration of Jesus and the transfiguration of his disciples by that light is most clear in Matthew 13. He explains the final judgment, which is to be carried out by the angels. And then he says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Don't miss that connection. The connection between the light of Jesus' face and the transfiguration which shines like the sun and the disciples who will also shine like the sun in the resurrection. That is the hope that Matthew was pointing us to. That we would be transfigured forever together with Christ filled forever with divine presence and even made partakers of the divine nature. The transfiguration is the hope for humanity. And it is a perennial source for our renewal as a church. In our despairing age, we have to meditate upon this image and let it give us hope. I've already told you how important the transfiguration is for Eastern Orthodoxy. And you probably know as well that iconography is a central aspect of Eastern Orthodox theology and piety. And the transfiguration icon is really at the heart of Orthodox iconography. You see a version of that icon on the cover of your bulletin today, so... Turn over and look at that. Rowan Williams, commenting on this icon, says that looking at Jesus seriously changes things. If you don't want to be changed, it is better not to look too hard or too long. The apostles in the icon are shielding their eyes because what they see is not easily manageable in their existing world. The light which they see in Christ's face is not a phenomenon of this world, but rather it is a direct encounter with the action of God which alters the whole face of the creation. 
Now listen, if you are one of the walking wounded of this world, if despair has gripped you, if you've lost confidence in the power of the gospel, if you've fallen prey to the deadly secularism which suffuses our world, I want to encourage you to look at the face of Christ transfigured. Let Christ's power to transfigure you and to transfigure his church be your hope. Carry the fire. When we come to the Eucharist together, it is the hope that we will be transfigured with Christ that we profess. And it is the hope which we receive when we are fed with Christ's body and blood. And so if you're hungry and thirsty for that hope, then I bid you to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.